This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have an interview with Jesse Pruitt. Our dinosaur of the day is Ineosaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. Before we get into that, we want to thank our patrons from Patreon at the $5 level. So big shout out to Scotty, Jackson, and Megan. You guys are awesome, and we really appreciate your support. And if you would like to join these special people on this tier or other tiers and help support our podcast, then please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Yeah, we're still planning on sending everybody stickers when we get to the $200 mark. And we're getting close. We're at $135, I think, right now. So $65 more and everybody gets a sticker who's a patron even if you're only at a $1 level. So feel free to join. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So jumping right into the news, I want to go back to SVP real quick because there are so many stories from SVP. And one really interesting one was by Struble and others. Struble was the one who presented it. And it's about raptor feet. And specifically, they were very quick to say, we're talking about the birds and not the non-avian dinosaurs, although there are non-avian dinosaur conclusions that you might be able to draw if you are creative. So the tricky thing is that historically raptors have been hard to define since they come from three different taxonomic groups. So they kind of evolved three different ways. And really what people are usually talking about when they talk about raptors are birds that prefer using their feet to attack than their mouths. So if you think of like a hawk diving in with its talons out versus, say, like a seagull, which goes in with its beak, is kind of the difference there. And it makes it a little bit easier to qualify which things are raptors when you look at their behavior. And they showed a couple of birds that both ate snakes, which was just an awesome demonstration. There were two videos and they looked very similar. They both had really long legs and they had similar proportions and things. And one of them attacked it kind of how you'd expect a bird to. It ran over to it and then it pecked it, you know, and kind of killed it with its mouth. The other one ran over and just started kicking it. Wow. <laughs> it just kind of kicked the snake to death. And so that would be the characteristic of a raptor. So it, it's preferring its feet as kind of its weapon or its tool or whatever. So like a crow wouldn't be because they use their mouth to use little tools and stuff like that. So ultimately, the researchers looked really closely at the differences in feet between raptors and birds that prefer their mouth. So what they ended up finding was that the way their feet looked actually changes depending on what they use their feet for. It's not really too surprising. So those birds that didn't perch tended to have longer toes and raptors tended to have kind of more even toes. I think there's a technical way to say it, but a couple of the digits are reduced and it just gives kind of a different look to the foot. And then on top of that, animals with very specific diets tended to have specific features too, like the birds that ate fish tended to have an extra flexible toe so that they could grab onto slippery prey better because it's all squirmy and you need your toes to be more flexible. 
And they're hopeful that they might be able to use this research to determine what kind of diets dinosaurs had, because even if all you have is a footprint or a fossilized foot, if you know that there's this characteristic relationship between toe size and what they eat, you might be able to figure out a little bit about their behavior just from their foot. So pretty cool. I wonder what's messier, killing prey by beak or foot? I would definitely prefer foot. I would, yeah. Because whenever you're going in with your face, it's like, you know, that's kind of a sensitive part of the body. If your beak's big enough, though, it's kind of far from the rest of you. <laughs> I of your face. that's true. <laughs> but like you're going after a snake. Do you want to like lunge at a snake face first? I think I'd rather kick at it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The beak probably has more precision. Yeah, I don't know. Those hawks and things with their talons are pretty slick. That's true. But... Anyway, it's hard to say with dinosaurs. Hopefully they can come up with some kind of correlation so we can get more details about what they eat. Next up, Lita Shing and others, including Scott Persons, who we interviewed a while back, have re-examined a set of tracks from southern China. And these tracks make up the, quote, largest late Cretaceous dinosaur track assemblages in south China, end quote. So... The really interesting thing is that there's a lot of diversity in the tracks. It's mostly ornithopods. There are about 30 large and small tracks. And both of those have three wide toes. And they've been assigned to Hadrosauropodus, which is an ichnotaxa for a hadrosaur. And you might remember from our episode where we talked about ichnology, ichnotaxa is a dinosaur or other animal group that's named based on a trace fossil. So in this case, it's literally that footprint is named after the species, basically, rather than a bone. You can do it based on a footprint, too. So we're not sure exactly which hadrosaur it came from, but we've seen these types of tracks before. There are also a couple of theropods. One was possibly a wading bird, and then the other one is a two-toed track that looks a lot like a dromaeosaur or raptor foot, but it might just be a poorly preserved three-toed track where like one of the toes didn't get preserved. I'd like to think it's a dromaeosaur because those are exciting. And then there was just a single pterosaur print. And pterosaur prints are usually really interesting because they have the footprints and then they have the kind of hand at the end of the wing prints. But since there was only a single print, it was just one of the feet. So pretty cool. It's a very interesting combination of animals, and they think it's from a late Cretaceous lake shore, which is also pretty interesting that all these animals are kind of hanging out on the beach. Living the life. <laughs> Hopefully not getting eaten. That's true. If we only know the tracks. Yeah. And they're all jumbled up. It, if you look at them, it doesn't look like anything at all. It just looks like a random pile in all different directions. So I'm sure it was over the course of many days or even years because it's all mixed up. Cool. Next up is some kind of sad news. So the Philip J. Curry Museum, which we visited back in July, and we made a short video about our visit, and we talked about it a lot. They're having some financial problems, according to CBC. Though they had 120,000 visitors during the first year of being open, which was this past year, they don't think it's a sustainable number of visitors, and they also don't receive any government funding, and their fundraising efforts have not been as successful as they'd hoped. So they've had to spend a lot of money on travel and training and conferences to promote the museum, because as we talked about, it's in Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is very much in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's way, way north. <laughs> way yeah. north. Yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, their efforts have only led to a handful of people actually visiting, and in this past October, they had to let go of their CEO, George Jacob, even though he had nine months left in his contract, and they're not even looking for a replacement until spring since winters are so slow. They've also let go of some other staff, including their gift shop manager, and they're not going to replace that person. Eventually, they do plan to hire marketing and fundraising coordinators, so that's something. Uh, next year, they will put on display 7,000 fossils from a local man who recently passed away, and that's to promote the kind of stuff that you can find locally because he had found the bones around Pipestone Creek, which is right there, basically. In happier news, according to a separate CBC article, Philip Curry will lead a dig at Pipestone Creek, and he'll be looking for a complete troodon dinosaur. There's a lot of teeth that have been found in the area, 
and no complete specimen of Troodon has been found yet, and that dinosaur was described back in 1856. The Grand Prairie region, which is where Pipestone Creek is, has been the site for lots of bones of small lizards and mammals, so there's hope for finding small dinosaurs, and Curry will be working with 6 to 15 other researchers, including paleontologists from China. Cool. That's kind of like what was going on when we ambushed them last time. Yeah, so hopefully they find what they're looking for, and maybe that'll attract more visitors to the museum. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised they're talking about Troodon since... When we were there, the, all they were talking about was ceratopsians, because that's kind of the main thing that they find in Pipestone Creek. I wonder if they found a little bit of a troodon, but they don't want to say it. Maybe. And then they're going to excavate the rest of it and hope to find the rest of the body. <laughs> yeah, hard to say. Next up, thanks to Patrick for sharing this with us on Facebook. The creative director of the original Walking with Dinosaurs TV show and the producer of the Walking with Dinosaurs arena show are leading the effort for a new dinosaur show. And we loved both of those, especially the arena show. It had some of the coolest dinosaur animatronics I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. The new show is going to be called Dinosaurs in the Wild. And apparently it has been in the works for at least five years. And they've now got over 100 specialists working on the project. So it's quite an undertaking. And the new company running it is called Immersive Escapes Limited, and their goal is to make a 70-minute show that, quote, blends museum-accurate science with the excitement of a theme park, end quote. So that sounds pretty cool. It, it does. And it sounds actually a lot like Walking with Dinosaurs. I wonder what the difference will be. I know the kind of theme of Walking with Dinosaurs, at least the arena show, was a guy went back in time and kind of narrated it. So maybe since this one's called In the Wild, it'll be a little bit more, you know, dinosaurs only, not with the dude in the middle of it. That could be nicer, potentially. <laughs> They've said that they have a lot of very talented puppeteers and CGI creators working on the project. So I'm sure the show is going to be really awesome. And they're planning on opening in June 2017 in Birmingham. And then it looks like they're going to move to Manchester and London. Although on their investment website, it references opening, quote, identical attractions all over the world, end quote, as well as the potential for adding rides. So I'm not sure if they're thinking of making a more permanent presence somewhere, because if you're going to have like rides, it's kind of difficult to travel with that. I don't know. You have uh, county fairs have rides. Yeah, but those are pretty janky rides. <laughs> yeah. If you want like a good ride. We don't know what kind of rides they'll have. I suppose so. It, I guess it could just be like one of those 3D movie things that would be pretty portable, probably fit in a semi-truck or something. But I don't know. Maybe it'll just be several traveling exhibits or maybe there'll be a few more permanent ones. We'll have to see. Hopefully we don't have to go to England to see it because I want to see it. And that's far. Yeah. Well, might have to make a trip there anyway. I guess so. <laughs> Speaking of traveling exhibits, the Duchess of Cambridge, also known as Princess Kate, recently visited the Natural History Museum in London to say goodbye to Dippy before the Diplodocus goes on tour. And she made these dinosaur egg-topped pencils with students from an elementary school nearby and then told them that her son Prince George loves dinosaurs and that his favorite is T-Rex because it's the, quote, noisiest and scariest, end <laughs> quote. And they also ate a dippy-shaped farewell cake, so. They ate it? Probably. Well, they cut into it. I'm sure they oh, ate it after. Poor Dippy. It's okay. Dippy was right there watching. <laughs> oh, does that make it better? <laughs> I think so. It, it was in Dippy's honor. I guess so. I guess it's kind of like when you have a picture of a person on a cake and then you eat it. That always feels weird, too. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, there's an article on Engadget asking the question, why are dinosaurs everywhere in VR? And it's certainly true. There are a lot of VR dinosaur demos and probably at least a quarter of the content that I've downloaded or watched on the Rift has dinosaurs in it, although I realize that I'm not exactly the average consumer and it's probably a little more dinosaur heavy <laughs> in my case. There is a ton of dinosaur content available. So the article talks about how the main reason is that they have a, quote, epic sense of scale, end quote. And I definitely think that's a big part of why they're so attractive for VR. I mentioned back when I talked about the Dinosaur Island VR game 
that it's basically just a tour of Jurassic Park where you kind of walk around and there isn't a ton of interaction going on. But it's still really fun, even though it's so simple, because you get that sense of scale right when you're next to a dinosaur. So I do think that's really valuable also. And since dinosaurs are extinct, it's obviously the only way where you can really experience them up close. Because unlike going to a safari or something, you know, you could see an elephant up close, but you can't see a brachiosaurus up close. So all that reminded me that Saurian is supposed to be coming out soon, potentially with VR, although maybe not at launch. <laughs> I hope it's at launch because I want it. And I checked the current status of their development, and they still say they're expecting to release on Steam Early Access in the first quarter of 2017. It's coming up. Yeah, so that would be March or earlier. And I hope that happens because I want it so bad. <laughs> <laughs> also in VR news, there's a new video posted by the American Museum of Natural History on YouTube called Fossil Hunting in the Gobi 360. And it follows Roy Chapman Andrews' expeditions through Mongolia and the Gobi Desert. And apparently there is a lot of footage of this, which is surprising because it was pretty early in the 1900s when he was going around collecting things. But they did have a cameraman with them. And apparently, at least according to the video, it was a huge scale project with over 100 camels and 40 scientists on the Central Asiatic Expeditions is what it was called. Wow. And it was also one of the first expeditions that used vehicles. They had tons of Jeep-like vehicles, off-roading vehicles and stuff that were constantly getting stuck trying to drive around on the dirt. They found lots of dinosaurs, early mammals, and other prehistoric life. And the VR itself is this crazy collage-style thing where it's kind of a big background picture, like a 360 picture kind of thing. And then they have these videos fading in and out around it. So it's like a collage, but it's constantly changing, and then you never really know where to look because there's always videos popping in and out all around you. <laughs> One second there's a camel, another second it's people. Yeah, it's pretty weird. But it actually works pretty well, and the only thing that's a little bit strange about it is that it's all in sepia and black and white, so it doesn't really feel that immersive because obviously in real life nothing's in black and white, so it's kind of strange. But Or does it feel like you're time traveling? Well, I, I mean, I assume that if I went back to the 20s, everything wouldn't be in black and white. We don't know how time travel works. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. But... In the VR experience, I think the best part is when they describe accidentally finding the flaming cliffs and they kind of superimpose a video of the paleontologist on top of the cliff in the distance above an actual 3D photo of the flaming cliffs. So it kind of has the feel like you're actually there watching them discover it. So it's definitely worth watching. I think it's only like three and a half minutes long. And you don't need VR to watch it since it's on YouTube. It's a 360 video. So uh, we'll post a link so you can see and, and you kind of click around to move things around. Yeah, you drag around like you're doing a virtual tour of an apartment or something. <laughs> it's a lot more fun in VR though. And Google Cardboard is really cheap. So if you don't have it, you should get it. Last in the news, Kyle Sinkler, a rugby player, told ESPN that when he was a kid, he thought he was a dinosaur. Which, I know there's a lot of kids who pretend to be a lot of different animals. Got a cousin who pretended to be a cat for a while. I don't think I ever pretended to be a dinosaur. Probably should have. Maybe a different animal. So, he said, quote, I used to run around eating leaves. I swear to you on my life, end quote. And he said he used to eat bushes and leaves, but then he realized that he liked meat. I'm wondering if he ever thought about being a carnivorous dinosaur. I was like, no, definitely have to be an herbivore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty odd considering... There are plenty of dinosaurs that eat meat. He could have just eaten it like, you know, more aggressively without using a knife or something and pretended to be a dinosaur. Maybe he thought he would have had to have eaten raw meat or something to pretend to be a carnivorous dinosaur. It could be. I guess most of the uh, heroes in dinosaur kid stories are herbivores. Usually the bad guys are the carnivores. That's true. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we have our interview with Jesse Pruitt, the scan tech at the Idaho Virtualization Lab. We're here today with Jesse Pruitt, digital preparator at the Idaho Virtualization Lab and technology specialist at Idaho State University. The Idaho Virtualization Lab is a research unit of the Idaho Museum of Natural History on the campus of Idaho State University. And the lab educates researches and provides informatics, which is information science, to social and natural sciences. And they do this through uh, virtually archiving museum collections, fossils, and other items so that anyone can access specimens and collections for research. And Jesse also does data acquisition and processing, web distribution, and makes 3D models of fossils. And he's also a paleontology modeler and animator. So how did you first become interested in dinosaurs? You know, as a Probably your your average American child. I grew up loving dinosaurs, had dinosaur books and flashcards and, and stuff like that. When I was a kid, I grew up in rural Mississippi, so wasn't a, a whole lot of dinosaurs to be found there. But I uh, would go out fishing and find fossils along the, the banks of the rivers there. So it's just something I've I've had with me my, my whole life. Cool. So then what led you to this more tech side of things with the scanning and 3D modeling? Oh, that's a that's a long story. <laughs> uh, ultimately, it was a an injury on a job. I was working as a mechanic and got injured and ended up tearing my rotator cuff and wasn't able to do mechanical work anymore. Mm. So I went back to the university as pretty much a, a last resort to to try and find myself a better job. And then when I went there, I, I met with a professor. I was going to be an archaeologist because Idaho State University doesn't offer paleontology as an undergrad track hmm. so I was going to do archaeology because it's fairly close and I'm kind of interested in in that world as well so I met with a professor and he just happened to be a director at the Idaho Museum of Natural History at the time and he chatted with me for a bit and realized that I really wasn't interested in that I was more <laughs> interested in fossils so he put me into contact with the collections manager in paleo and then I interned there for a few years and then through a research project that got into the 3d technology working on the helicoprion shark. So that was my first dive into the, the digital realm was that shark and processing CT data. Cool. Yeah, you sent us a link about that, right, and putting together that exhibit. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that experience and your role specifically for that? Sure. It was um, it started as an undergraduate research project. I was told you know, if you want to get into grad school, you need to have some research under your belt to help you set you aside from the rest of the applicants. So I picked Helicoprion because at the time it was a 
you know, very little was known about it other than, you know, it was a shark and it had this weird spiral of teeth. So I set about trying to figure out how that whirl spiral of teeth grew. And that was the, the main basis of it. So I did a bunch of measurements and analysis. Um, I think I looked at about 70 specimens of that. Wow. Measuring all the teeth and measuring the spiral and just a, just a whole lot of numbers. And we figured out that there were three distinct species of helicoprion. We figured out how they grow, if you can tell, in the spiral of teeth, how they, they change ontogenetically as they age. And then from there, the, the next step was to figure out how that whirl fit into the animal. That was the big question with that shark for, for over 100 years. And naturally, the, the only way to do that was through CT technology. So we have a specimen in our collection that's really well preserved. You can see the, the jaw material expressed on the surface of the rock. So we took that to Austin, Texas, had it CT scanned. And then I spent about four months processing that CT data. That was a, a manual process. That was one slice at a time. I would go through and, and hand paint the material I could see because the fossil itself is fossilized in a phosphatic concretion. Mm-hmm. So there's very little density variation between the fossil itself and the rock. So it was mm-hmm. a manual process of painting that fossil one slice at a time over four months to extract the data from the rock. Wow. Then once we did it, we figured out that the world occupies the entirety of the lower jaw, which is something that had been uh, hypothesized back in the 60s, but was never never confirmed up until that research. Yeah, because there, there are some other versions of that skull where it kind of sticks out of the mouth too, right? Yeah, the the leading hypothesis up to that point was that it spiraled under the, the lower jaw, so the teeth grew out of the mouth and just sort of hung out below it, which is pretty pretty inefficient for an animal that's evolved to, to be very smooth and hydrodynamic uh, yeah. in a way that prevents fish from being able to detect it. So it's that really wouldn't work out too well for an animal. Could it close its mouth with that huge thing in, in there? It could, yeah. So the top of the mouth sort of looks like a like a hard shell taco. It's got a nice big deep cavity that the the world just slides right up into. And then there's two different mechanisms in its jaw that prevent the teeth from coming into contact with the upper jaw. It's actually got a a strut that comes up and sports it from the side that wedges it from the side. There's also at the back of the jaw there's a, a little process. It's called the Pruitt process because I found it. <laughs> um, awesome. That prevents the the jaws from touching there's a, a process comes off the upper jaw that abuts with the lower jaw that stops it oh okay interesting yeah that's one of the most interesting looking prehistoric animals i think <laughs> yeah it really captures the imagination it's really fun to here at the museum we'll give kids a you know a quick little rundown of the research we've done then we'll show them the spiral and we'll have them reconstruct the animal how they think it would happen and it's it's pretty fun to see what they come up with <laughs> yeah that's cool so you mentioned CT scans. What other kind of tools do you use for the Idaho Virtualization Lab? The bulk of our work, we do surface scanning. So we primarily rely on laser scanning technology. We've got a couple of articulated arm laser scanners. We have a terrestrial LIDAR unit that we use for mapping big sites or really big objects. We scan whales and stuff with the, the LIDAR unit. We have a couple of turntable-based laser systems, so if we've got a, just a lot of material we need to crank through really fast, we can put the objects on a turntable, and it's kind of an automated process. We do a bit of structured light. We've got a handheld structured light scanner, which shoots out a pulsing light with a grid pattern in it, hmm. and then that has a couple of cameras, and it detects how the, the grid deforms over the surface. And then we do photogrammetry. We can process CT data, MRI data. We have a scanning electron microscope on campus. We use that to, to a degree or two for very, very small objects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then hand modeling, we do quite a bit of that too. So, Oh, that's a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, we, we try and really cover all the bases and make sure that we can we can provide any service that a researcher would need. So is there kind of a, a process you follow for each specimen or it is it just kind of case by case depending on? And what you have and what you need. The workflow is pretty much consistent across everything we do, but it does, there is a bit of case by case. Fossils vary quite a bit in their surface color and detail and texture. So if we have a fossil that's really black, like a lot of the material coming out of the Cleveland Lloyd dinosaur quarry in Utah is really black, 
And the lasers, there's a design to not detect black. They're designed to pick up white. So we have to calibrate our lasers to, to detect black, which can be kind of problematic. In fact, we've had, over the years, the, the people that make the technology have told us to just paint our objects white. <laughs> well, we, we can't very well paint a fossil. It's like, so we need, to, we need to be able to detect black objects, and they don't like that too much. But <laughs> So it's, it's basically the same. The basic workflow is you scan the object, and you scan it as many times as it takes to capture the entire surface, and then you flip that object, you scan it again until you capture that surface, and then inside the software you stitch those two um, pieces together to create a full object, and then you create a, a full surface 3D model. That's pretty consistent across all of the technology, with the exception of CT processing, but photogrammetry, laser, structured light, LIDAR, all works essentially the same. Hmm. Do you do a lot of LIDAR, like when they first discover a quarry or something, or when would you use the LIDAR? We got the LIDAR unit specifically to scan really big natural history objects like whale skulls and stuff like that. But since we have it, we do go out. I took it to Alaska three years ago, I guess now. I was in there uh, out in the field for seven weeks doing some archaeology work, and we used the LIDAR to map an entire island. So I just walked around the island when the, the sun was out and it was a nice day and, and mapped that entire island with the LIDAR. And then as we were digging, I would go into an area, scan it before we dig, and then every time we'd open a new layer, I would take a new scan so that now we can digitally reconstruct that dig in three dimensions and peel away layer by layer. And as we were recording the, the material we were finding, we uh, subsequently laser scanned all that material. Now we can take those 3D objects and place them stratigraphically back in their their columns and you can pull it apart virtually. But we do a lot of terrestrial material, a lot of really big objects with it. We've scanned mountainsides that have petroglyphs on them. We've done a bit of that. And then most recently, our lab manager just went out and uh, digitized a series of caves here at the uh, Craters of the Moon National Park here in Idaho hmm. for search and rescue operations. So if somebody gets lost in a cave, now we've got a 3D model of that cave. People can look for... Uh, where somebody might have potentially gotten stuck or something like that. Interesting. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it's fun to see the data. I'm glad I wasn't part of that. <laughs> Bob, our, our manager, spent about a week on his belly crawling through these caves with a with a $80,000 3D scanner. <laughs> Did he get stuck at all? Uh, he said there was a couple of times. He got wedged pretty good, but Ugh. he never never got stuck. I can see you're trying to scan things in places where someone might get stuck so that you'll know if they get stuck and then you get stuck. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I wasn't part of that project. Yeah. Let's care for tight spaces. Yeah, it's not good for claustrophobia. <laughs> so it's an ongoing project, right? The research quest with the Natural History Museum of Utah. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a really fun project. Madeline Runberg is their educational coordinator for the museum there, and she had an idea to get kids more involved in critical thinking at a younger age, so she came up with Research Quest. So I went down to their museum, I digitized a bunch of their dinosaur bones, and now they've got these digital models that they go to a website and has built-in measurement tools and comparison tools, and you can compare one bone to another and things like that. So now kids are given a series of bones and they're doing measurements just like a paleontologist would. They're measuring length and width, and you can measure volume and things like that inside the 3D models to build a, a, a small database of, of known specimens. And then they're given mystery bones. So they're given a bone that they don't know what it is. There's no information associated with it. So they take a series of measurements of that, and then they try and figure out what that bone is based on how it compares to the known measurements they've done. <laughs> And they've had some really great success teaching kids critical thinking skills doing that. And it's a fun way because they're, they're playing with dinosaur bones, so they don't really think about the, the math involved. Definitely. So is this something kids have to go to the museum to do? Because it's on a, an app, right? No, it's uh, so they built this service. So I think they've opened it up nationwide now, but it was just in Utah. But you can do it right from their school, so you can integrate it directly into a lesson plan at any school anywhere in the state. So teachers get a login credential, they log in, and then they can uh, have their students um, log in on iPads, I think is how they have it set up, so that they can do all these measurements there. But yeah, and pretty much anybody in the country can have access to that research tool. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really fun project. It's great, and it's 
really rewarding to see it positively affecting the kids. And, you know, it's dinosaurs, so <laughs> they get to have fun with it. Exactly. So, yeah, and we'll be sure to post links to everything on our website, too, so our listeners can check it out. So how long has the Idaho Virtualization Lab been around? 14 years this year. We're uh, almost 15 years. It was started back in 2002. Wow. And about how many people work there? Anywhere from, from 8 to 10 people at any given time working there. Cool. So what's the most interesting thing that you'd say you've worked on? Oh, that's a tough <laughs> question. The Tiktaalik project was pretty important one for me. I felt like that was kind of a, a highlight of my career, being able to digitize that iconic fossil and being able to work with it so closely. But we do quite a bit of really fun stuff. We just recently helped an Idaho County here on a, a cold case murder investigation. That was pretty interesting. It's not something we do very often, but they bought us a, you know, a box of remains that we digitized and virtually reconstructed the skeleton and we were working with a forensic anthropologist, sort of like Bones on TV. <laughs> she looked at the bones after we had them together and was able to determine that the guy had a back disorder and a hip disorder. So he would have walked with a limp and had kind of a hunched posture. So the sheriff's department was actually able to ID those remains for the first time. Wow. Based on the description she gave from the bones that we were able to put back together for him. So that was kind of fun. But we, we do quite a bit of weird stuff. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of variation there. When you first said murder mystery, I was thinking like Cleveland Lloyd Corey and how that's described. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you mean you mean modern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, modern. It wasn't it's not all fossils there. <laughs> Can we just I just wanna go back to the, the TikTok and that project and you, you scanned and modeled this entire collection of material that was collected in Nunavut. So how much can a 3D scan tell you about a fossil? So the, the one thing that we can't do is it's all surface data. So we don't get any of the, the internal structures. So that's the one big difference between CT scanning and laser scanning is that we only collect surface data, which is good enough if you're doing morphometric analysis. You can do landmark analysis and stuff like that. But the scanners that we use in the lab are capable of about, I can push them to about 16 micron resolution, which is, you know, that's better than you can see with your naked eye Yeah. Of surface detail. So I can pick up, if there's a detail on the surface, I can capture that. So there's, you're not losing anything. They're 100% accurate to scale. So once I've created a fossil, the measurements are going to be as accurate as you could do you know, with the specimen in hand. So essentially what we create with these scans is a, we call it a digital surrogate. It's a 100% <laughs> accurate to scale, to detail, representation of a, a real-world object that can be researched and things like that. Cool. So what happens between scanning and then putting it up on Sketchfab or your website? So that depends on the, the application of the person that's requesting the digitization. But the, the basic process is you scan an object, then you... Um, so that generates a point cloud data similar to what you would see with LiDAR. So it's just a bunch of, of points. So that has to be surfaced. So then you surface the model, which turns it into what we call a watertight or manifold 3D model. And then from there, um, it gets cleaned up a bit. And inherently, there's going to be um, some some surfaces that you can't see. Or there's going to be holes that just can't quite get the laser into deep enough to, to capture the bottom of or, or things like that. So there's going to be a bit of cleanup. You're going to have to fill holes or you'll have to clean up a little bit of the data. You know, a lot of times fossils are, are prepared in such a way that they, you know, they're glued back together and stuff like that. So you end up with shiny surfaces or, you know, some some epoxy that's kind of translucent, and it does some weird things with the laser that way. So you have to clean up a bit of noise on the scans. So to put things online so that people can see them on their smartphone, a lot of these models, for example, the Tiktaalik skull is a, it's a pretty small skull. It's about the size, a little bit bigger than a, a softball, maybe a cantaloupe-sized object hmm. that thing was like 40 million polygons it's a really dense <laughs> heavy scan and you can't load that on a smartphone it just crashes the <laughs> software so we go through and we optimize those models for web viewing so we go through and it's called uvs create uvs for an object and then we create a series of maps that allow you to put a, a low resolution model online 
but it fakes the detail of, of having a really high resolution object. Huh. Sort of Hollywood and video game magic that people have been using <laughs> for years in those fields, but trying to integrate those into into what we do. That's cool. Hey. So that, that's kind of like a, um, what do they call those? A texture map that you put on top of it that shows the little details that you don't necessarily need all the polygons for? Uh, it would be, a, so it's a normal map and a displacement map. A texture map we also do, but that would be for color detail. Okay. Cool. I don't, I've never heard of a normal map before. <laughs> so normal maps are, if you look at them without being on an object, they're like a, kind of look like a rainbow or like an oil slick on water. It's a colored thing. It's hmm. a, it's just a fake map that recreates shadows to give you a, a look of 3D on a, an object that doesn't really have surface detail on it. So it's basically a fake shadow map. Cool. And have you worked on any of the dinosaurs in the area? We've done quite a bit. I'm working on a research project currently. Since you guys were SVDP, you got to see it, the new ankylosaur out of Utah. <laughs> I'm working on a research project with that currently that I can't really go into a huge amount of detail about. But <laughs> sure. I digitized the, uh, the entire skeleton of that for a project that I'm currently working on. Cool. And then there's, oh, I think I'm up to almost 50 dinosaur models from Utah for their research quest project. And then various other dinosaurs from around the, the area and scanned a T-Rex from L.A. County skull. That's about it. Idaho's not really great for, for dinosaurs. Yeah. It's uh, we've got this weird volcanic state, so most of our dinosaurs are under 60, 70 feet of, of old lava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have the same problem in California. Most of the dinosaur fossils you'd find, I think, are up in mountains. You know, they're buried in trees and things, too. Dirt. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, since you're also an artist and you have a portfolio on ArtStation and a separate Facebook page, and we didn't talk about it, but the Idaho Virtualization Lab also has a Facebook page for our listeners. And we'll link to all these so you can see for yourselves. But as a paleo artist, what do you specialize in? Like, what are your favorite things to create? I'm trying to prevent myself from getting hyper-specialized. I try to do art in a way that's as broad as possible, so I try and flex out a bit, I guess, if it were. I, I really like marine marine animals. I'm kind of I'm a paleoichthyologist. I like the, the sharks is my main research goal, but um, I really like just really weird marine critters. <laughs> so I'm currently working on a Bacillosaurus model. It's a big whale from the southeast United States. <laughs> cool. I really like mixing the 3D with the art. It's really nice being able to, to digitize a skull and then actually flesh that out in a, a realistic way instead of just trying to, to figure out proportions as I'm, as I'm going mm -hmm. based on photos and stuff like that. So what's your process for creating art? Uh, so <laughs> one of my coworkers calls it the, the bubblegum approach. So I use um, ZBrush, which is a, a 3D package that's really popular in Hollywood for creating organic 3D models. And it works really well. It's it's set up to be like a, a digital clay. So you, hmm. you have a bunch of tools. So it's just like a clay sculptor would use, except I get to cheat and use a symmetry tool so I can sculpt on both sides of it at the same time without <laughs> having to go back and do it later. Cool. But it's basically just digital clay, so I can, I can glob on extra clay where I need to build up a surface or I can carve into it where I need to take stuff away and then... Basically, I just start with a, it's a sphere and just keep adding and stretching and pulling and carving and cutting until I get a 3D object. I'm, I'm working on a bison latifron skull right now for the museum, creating one that we can use for various purposes. Mm -hmm. And I'm recording that process. So I'll be able to post that online to show people kind of how that comes together. Oh, awesome. Since we, in a lot of these cases, like we know maybe a little bit about the animal or maybe a lot, but there's, we don't know everything about the animal. So how much liberty do you take with your art? Like how much is interpretation and, and I guess almost guesswork. And then how much do you usually actually know? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Paleo art's kind of a, a weird thing. A lot of the times, a lot of the animals that you're trying to reconstruct don't really have modern analogs. And if they do, they're you know quite a few million years removed from the, the animal you're working on. The best thing I can 
do is dig through the primary research and look at the descriptions that paleontologists have put together of these animals. And then you, know, you just kind of fill in the, the missing pieces from what isn't there. But primarily, I work mostly off of actual publications and journals and, and material where this stuff has been published. And I try and try and keep it as scientifically based as possible without you know putting a whole lot of artistic license into it. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Bacillosaurus, there's you know there's quite a few of the the relatives of that guy that are pretty well described, and we've got some pretty good skulls and full body fossils of that. But you know to recreate an animal as realistically as possible, it's kind of a a tricky thing. But <laughs> <laughs> you know we'll we'll never really know. But you know at least I have the benefit of most of the stuff I work on still kind of has a, a modern analog in the the world we live in unlike a you know a dinosaur where you know you don't have a whole lot of t-rexes running around <laughs> that's true <laughs> i uh tend to not get a do a whole lot of controversial stuff because a you know a whale is a whale and a shark is basically a shark so i don't i don't have people yelling at me for <laughs> for putting feathers on things or yeah. or any of that yeah i i could see how marine reptiles or even just other marine animals would be a little bit simpler possibly for art because they all tend to have similar colors and shading and they're all very smoothed so it doesn't give you the temptation to add random ornamentation sticking out yeah yeah it's kind of hard to get into trouble (laughs) doing stuff like that Uh, how long have you been working on your art Uh, about a couple years now i think it was uh i started doing research but i find art uh, a nice outlet for that and then uh through the, the Hillocoprion research, I spent quite a bit of time working with Ray Troll, who's a pretty prominent paleo artist, and uh, he kind of beat me over the head for the <laughs> four or five years that I've known him that, you know, you, you need art to explain your science. You can give a publication to a, another paleontologist, and they can look at graphs and charts and stuff like that, and they'll understand what you're talking about. But if you're going to engage the public in a discussion about animals of the past they need to be able to see that and they need to be able to see and understand what you're talking about so art becomes a bridge between science and our our real world definitely we really like to try and blend art and science which is something we do a lot with our facebook page for the idaho virtualization lab is you know a bone all by itself isn't that appealing but if you render it in such a way that it has you know some dramatic lighting and colors and stuff like that then it becomes more appealing for the public. That's the goal. That's ultimately we're doing it for the public. So we want them to be able to enjoy the material as much as you know, somebody would. That's just going to measure it and break it down into a series of numbers. Yeah. And then an art also, it can shape the way that everybody sees a, a certain type of animal. Do you ever feel pressure in that way? Like, you know, like, okay, it, maybe it's an animal that there's not, there's not much, uh, that's been made for it yet and you know like this is going to be what people think of yeah there's there's definitely pressure involved there in fact there's another shark that we're currently researching it's called edestus it's related to helicoprion but instead of a spiral of teeth it has a basically it has a they call it the scissor tooth shark because it has a pair of blades hmm. has a blade in its upper jaw and a blade in its lower jaw and they work kind of like a pair of shears hmm. and basically you just find the blades of teeth they're come out of the coal mines in, in Kentucky and Illinois. Hmm. But, you know, there's not very much known about them. But luckily, we've got another CT scan of the entire skull of one of those sharks. But, yeah, if you get the reconstruction wrong, the public tends to latch on to an idea. And they cling to that and hold on to it for a long time. So if you if you make a mistake the, the first go around, trying to correct that later down the road is problematic because people... People don't want to let go of what they've got. That's why. <laughs> the circles I'm in on Facebook is a lot of a paleo artists, and I see it with the the T Rex. People really resist the idea of these these guys having feathers. They don't. Oh yeah. You know they grew up seeing scaled dinosaurs, and that's that's their dinosaur. People take it personally. It seems that you know you're trying to take away a piece of their childhood, basically by recreating an animal that they grew up loving. And now they're now you've got the whole theropod lip debate, and you know people really like seeing teeth hanging out of the, the mouths of theropods. So when you when you put lips on a T Rex, people tend to get offended by that. Yeah, so there's 
there's quite a bit of pressure to get it right the the first time. Yeah, I think that's one thing that could be really great about your interaction with kids and kind of helping them see how the recreation process goes because it might take some of this emotional effect out of you know the public eye of what science is you know i don't like that version of science that's not the science that i knew it's like well that's not what science is (laughs) science always changes get used to it (laughs) yeah that's a that's a great lesson to teach kids early on that's you know science changes it's a it's a fluid understanding of the world around us so you have to be a little flexible in your ability to to take in new information and, and change your your thought process with it. Kids are great that way. It's really it's really rewarding working with kids. You can see it. You can change their mind and inside of a half hour discussion. But you know, us adults, we get set in our ways and <laughs> don't we don't like to change very often. So you gotta gotta get them while they're young. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned critical thinking too, because that is like my favorite topic for discussion. <laughs> cool. So, one more question about CT scanning versus these other ones. Do you do CT scanning less often just because it's so cumbersome, or is it because it's harder to do something like a whale skull and there are so many things that are too large to get into a CT scan? A lot of it is exactly that. It's a, a size restriction on it. In fact, our helicoprion fossil was just barely small enough to <laughs> to fit inside the, the industrial CT machine at Austin, and it's it's kind of a labor intensive process. If you just CT scan a you know a, a skull that's out of matrix, it's not that bad. You can uh, process it pretty well. But if you're dealing with fossils that are inside rock, there's a, a it's a long time. It's a manual process of extracting that fossil from the rock, so it really takes a a long time to do that. You know, our the bulk of what we do is digitizing collections, so we, we push for volume. So we need to be able to produce a, a high volume of high-resolution models in a cost-effective manner. Mm-hmm. That's where the laser scanners really come in handy. You can, you can crank through a... In the past, we've done tests, and if we put our entire lab on task, we can generate about 300 3D models a week if we, we just wow. crank on it. Yeah. So we can, we can digitize an entire collection pretty quick. In fact, the Tiktaalik collection, for example, had about 300 items in that. And I scanned that entire collection in about a week by myself and then spent another month or two building the 3D models. But, you know, if you were if you were going to CT scan that entire thing, you're looking at, you know, a couple of months of CT data collection and then another probably a year or so of creating 3D models based off of that then the, the public really doesn't care so much about the internal data. They just want to see a, <laughs> a cool fossil. So you you spend all that time and investment on a thing that somebody's going to see on Sketchfab and they're going to spin it around a couple of times and then go uh, go play around on Farmville or whatever, <laughs> whatever they were going to do. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a balancing act. you got to try and find the balance between you know a research-ready model and uh, something that the public is going to be interested in seeing. Great. So where's the best place for people to find out more about the Virtual Museum of Idaho? Probably our Facebook page, I would assume. We're uh, we're pretty bad about social media. <laughs> and, uh, we forget about Twitter. We've got a Twitter account, but we forget about it. So we tweet about once every six months or so. We'll, <laughs> we'll do something there, but... Facebook is something we, we seem to do quite a bit of. So most of our updates go there. And then the Idaho Museum of Natural History has a has a website and that's that's updated pretty regularly. But the we have the Virtual Museum of Idaho, which I don't think there's any way to filter for new content, but we're constantly adding new material to that. So there's there's always stuff going and then of course there's Sketchfab. So we add content to Sketchfab and then we integrate that into our virtual museum website. So Sketchfab gives you kind of the, the opportunity to see it first and you get that notification letting you know that we've added something new. Cool. And is that just for our listeners to know uh, if they go to Sketchfab, they can just search virtual museum of Idaho? Uh, Idaho Virtualization Lab. Idaho Sketchfab. Virtualization Lab. Okay, great. And we'll be posting all these links, but just in case for the people who might only be listening. <laughs> All right, so we have 
Just one last question that we ask everybody. What is your favorite dinosaur? I'm, a, I'm an ankylosaur guy. How do yeah. you go with ankylosaur? <laughs> I don't think they get quite enough love in the, the paleo world. That's my favorite too. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, good. You'll probably you'll probably enjoy the research I'm going to be kicking out hopefully in the next year or so. Awesome. I definitely will. <laughs> I might have to try to 3D print it or something. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Jesse. That was a great interview. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Ineosaurus, whose name means buffalo wizard. And that name is a combination of the Blackfeet word Ine, which means buffalo, and ancient Greek saurus. It was a centrosaurine ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Montana, and it was named in 1995 by Scott Sampson. The type species is Ineosaurus procurvicornis, and the species name means with a forward curving horn. It was found in two bone beds, at least 15 individuals of different ages with three adult skulls and hundreds of other bones. Jack Horner found the bone beds in 1985, and they were excavated between 85 and 89 by field crews from the Museum of the Rockies. The bone beds may be a result of a bunch of Ineosaurus around a water hole that was decreasing in size during a dry season, so they may have died from drought, or it's possible that they drowned while trying to cross a river. It's funny that those are two likely things and they're exact opposites in every way. Just shows how much we know. <laughs> yeah. So originally the bone beds were thought to have a new species of Styracosaurus, and the name Styracosaurus macalai was published in 1990, but with no description, so it's an invalid nomenutum. Jack Horner found three species in the bone beds and referred to them as type A, B, and C, and then Scott Sampson described type B in 1995 and named that one Ineosaurus. It may have been a herding animal. This is based on being found in bone beds. It was an herbivore, about 14.8 feet or 4.7 meters long and weighing 1.3 tons. It had a narrow pointed snout with a downward curving nasal horn that looks like a bottle opener, though that may only be in some adults. Somebody needs to make a bottle opener out of this. That would be great. <laughs> Their horns grew larger with age. In 2010, Julie Reisner studied individuals found at the Dino Ridge site and found Ineosaurus rapidly grew until it was three to five years old, and then it grew much more slowly, probably when it became sexually mature. The nasal horn was covered in a sheath, and it had large, rounded scales over its eyes based on a 2009 reconstruction of the skin and horn on ceratopsids by Tobin Hieronymus and colleagues. It had a pair of large spikes that projected backwards from its small frill, and the horns over the eyes were low and short. It had a short frill on its neck compared to chasmosaurine ceratopsians like Chasmosaurus, and it had smaller horns on the outside edges of the neck frill. It was probably used for display, though it may have helped protect it against tyrannosaurids like Gorgosaurus and Displetosaurus. It had a sharp beak that could shear through plants, and it had a battery of teeth to help eat tough plant material. And all known Ineosaurus fossils are currently at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. So, again, it was a ceratopsian, and ceratopsians were ornithischians. They lived in North America and Asia, and they had beaks and cheek teeth to eat fibrous vegetation. And they also had a frill that may have been used for defense, regulating body temperature, attracting mates, or signaling danger. And they probably traveled in herds and could then stampede if threatened. That'd be handy. And our fun fact of the day is that there are two dinosaurs that were named after Michael Crichton. The first one is... Cedrorestes crichtoni, which literally means cedar mountain dweller, 
and it's either an iguanodontian or a hadrosaur, and it was found in the Cedar Mountain formation. You might be able to guess where its genus name comes from now, along with Utah raptor and Gastonia. So pretty interesting group of dinosaurs in that Cedar Mountain. The other is Crichtonosaurus bolani, and that means Crichton's lizard. Pretty good one. It's a small ankylosaur, but unfortunately the few remains that were assigned to this species aren't unique, so it's likely a dubious genus. Bomber. So we need a new Crichtonosaurus. <laughs> That's what I think. Could happen. Although I don't know if you can name a new, like if there's a dubious genus, can you reuse that genus name? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. That'd be too bad. That could be a future fun fact. There needs to be a Crichtonosaurus, though. Maybe you could have a Michaelosaurus. That doesn't sound as good, though. Also, which Michael are you referring to? Yeah, that's true. And on that <laughs> note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support us, keep this podcast going, then please join our growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.